This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Take a dose of every day How am I supposed to stay In a world built on empty ways And the lessons of all the well, hello there. We are back into some interviews. So this podcast is Series 2, Episode 31. This is Rob Snow White, Fly Fishing Consultant. Thanking you, the listener, for going out of your way and downloading this. If you're listening to this as it's being released, we have a deal for you. I'll get to that soon. This podcast is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment. You can find them at blackdiamondequipment.com. They were generous enough to send over some toys for me to play with and first off the moji lantern it's pretty awesome it's the size of I mean, you can kind of put it in your palm and it lights up an entire room you can put your finger through the little hooks if you want to use it as a flashlight and point it where you're going you can hang it inside your tent it's just a really cool item it's only i think 19 dollars on their website and it's bright this is something i wish i had a long time ago in in the camping days that i used to do more often so this podcast is titled In the Land of Giants with Walter Weesey. Walter is a guide and author out of Southwest Montana, and we're about to hear his story. If you want to learn more about Walter now versus at the end of the podcast, you can pause now and go to YouTube, search Parks Fly Shop or Yellowstone Country Fly Fishing. Walter's fly fishing site is montanafishing.guide, and it will soon be moved over to ycflyfishing.com and you can also visit the shop where he works at parksflyshop.com and search him out on Facebook and give his shop a like. Now for the deal I was mentioning earlier in the intro, 
This is probably more timely if you're listening to it before the summer of 2015. The deal will be for two-day packages only. It's too far to drive for just one day. Um, the amount of the... Let's see. It's uh, it's $850 for the two-day trip from April 1st through June 14th. $950 for the package after June 14th. So um, it's a pretty good deal. It's uh, a pretty ridiculous spot. You can see it on his website. You can hear about it in the podcast. Without further ado, hopefully you are shoveling some snow or on a road trip or tying some winter flies because this podcast is a long one. So without further ado, like I said before, let's get into it. All right, let's uh, have Walter Weesey introduce us. He's going to take us from St. Louis all the way out to Yellowstone. So Walter, where are you checking in with us this evening? Well, right now I am in Gardner, Montana, which is the north entrance community for Yellowstone Park. So if I was going to throw a dart at Montana, where would it hit? Uh, Kind of in the southern end. Um, It's actually easier to think about it in terms of where it is in relationship to Wyoming. Um, If you look at where Wyoming ends at the northwest corner, I'm about maybe 20 miles east of that and then about three miles north. Okay. So I'm extreme extreme southern. It's not bad. Um, I actually do a great deal of my guiding in Yellowstone Park, and that's mostly in Wyoming. So what's your? You got a pretty big fee that I'm assuming with the National Park Service for a commercial use authorization. Yeah, um, I work in the park. I work through Park Supply Shop. I'm the head guide at Park Supply Shop in Gardner, Montana, and uh, that's who I work in the park through. And really, most of my guiding. Um, I am a Montana licensed outfitter, but I do most of my guiding still through Parks Fly Shop. All right. Well, let's start at the beginning to see how you you got out there. So you're from Missouri. Yeah, I grew up in St. Louis. Um, I started fly fishing when I was about six down in the Ozarks. Um, There's quite a bit of trout fishing down in the Ozarks. Um, Everybody's heard about the White River and uh, the North Fork of the White and those famous tailwaters, but... I actually grew up fishing Spring Creeks. I didn't really know there were that many Spring Creeks out there. Yeah, Missouri is actually chock full of Spring Creeks. Um, I don't think Arkansas has quite as many, but Missouri has just huge numbers of them. And when did you start fly fishing? How old were you? Um, I was about six. Um, I'd been fishing all my life, basically, and uh, my family, my dad, my grandpa, all love to trout fish. My, my dad actually taught my grandfather how to fly fish or at least got him into it. And, uh, so I was just begging and begging to get a a real fishing rod rather than this, you know, the push button kind of thing I was dealing with at the time. And, uh, so that's how I got into it. I, I just started fishing for stock trout when I was about fly fishing, at least for stock trout when I was about six. And, uh, that was, that was 1986. I'm 34. Okay. Do you miss toasted raviolis? Um, I, it's funny you say that because I brought a big bag back from Christmas and I just finished them last week. Yeah, those are tasty. All right. How about you explain those to the listeners? Cause I'll just, I'll just butcher it. Okay. Well, the story I heard, um, okay. St. Louis has actually a pretty strong Italian community. Um, there's a, the highest hill in St. Louis, the city of St. Louis is kind of an Italian neighborhood. And so there were all these little Italian restaurants and bars on this, this hill, they call it the hill. And uh, it's actually where Yogi Berra is from. And uh, so they made ravioli, obviously. And 
one day, supposedly, uh, the chef there accidentally dumped some ravioli into a deep fryer rather than into a, uh, you know, the boiling water. And then, so he's pulled them out, you know, screwed up. They were cooked, but they weren't right, obviously. And so he didn't know what to do with them, drained them, sprinkled them with powdered sugar, um, not powdered sugar, with uh, powdered uh, Parmesan cheese, and then gave them to some regulars to try. And they actually wound up ordering more. So basically, they're deep fried ravioli. Despite calling being called toasted ravioli, they're deep fried and they're delicious. They're, they're so good. And uh, Olive Garden has them, I think, most places. But I think most places they have them with cheese, and they're way better with meat. Yeah, I just remember having those in '96, driving cross country, and I was like, well, "Why don't we have these in DC?" Yeah, I mean, they're you know, there's a lot of things like them, like empanadas and uh, like crab rangoon and things like that. But yeah, no, they're really good. Right. Um, so, when did fly fishing for you become like your thing? When, when did it kind of take over your life? Well, it's always been like my main hobby. Um, I mean, you know, when I was a kid, I, fi- I I fished with conventional tackle when I was a kid. But in terms of becoming the main thing, you know, probably in all honesty, once I was probably about 14 and I started uh, realizing I wasn't going to be much good at any sport besides fly fishing. And uh, I actually started writing about fishing before I started guiding, I started writing about fishing in, uh, about 1999. And, uh, and then I got this job in 2001. Um, I've been, been guiding in Montana since 2001. And since then it's been the main thing. So how did you hone your skills as a spring Creek angler to eventually become guide and author and living out West? Well, the thing is, um, and I'm going to, this is going to surprise some people, but you know, I grew up fishing these thoroughly man-made fisheries, stocked fish, uh, spring creeks in the Ozarks mostly, although I, I had fished out here you know, on family trips a couple times before I moved out. And uh, the thing about a spring creek is that even if they're stocked trout, they're still spring creeks. And so when you really come down to it, the fishing is probably more technical there than it is here. At least if you're trying to use real flies, trying to fish dry flies, you know, uh, nymphs that actually imitate food rather than looking like a hatchery pellet, you know, trying to catch those holdover fish rather than the recently stocked fish. It's actually probably more technical. I mean, the water's slower, it's clearer. I grew up fishing 5 to 7x almost exclusively, and this season I don't think I fished less than 5x out here in Montana. So, yeah, I just would not want to fish 7X anywhere. No, it's it's not fun. I mean, that's the thing about fluorocarbon. You can wind up using uh, 6X fluoro, and it does the same thing as 7X mono. So, but, uh, so I, I had fished first in Yellowstone in 1993, and then the most recently I'd fished Yellowstone before I actually moved out here was 1999. And we actually took a guided float trip with uh, the shop I wound up working for. And uh, then the way I kind of came out here was kind of pure luck. Like I knew when I was in college that I wanted to do something fun kind of my last, my last summer. I'd been a lifeguard through my teens. And, uh, you know, yes, there were some bikini-clad beauties to, to look at, but there were also a lot of, like, old evil ladies. Like I, uh, I, I lifeguarded a suburban condo complex pool and it was horrible i mean it was 
it wasn't like Melrose Place because everybody was old, but in terms of the politics, it was just like that. I mean, it, this was this pool was the world for this condo complex, and it was just a terrible place. And so I wanted to do something fun for my last my last free year, or what I thought was going to be my last free year. And so I, I went looking for a job in Yellowstone Park um, in one of the stores inside the park, and uh, wound up getting a job. You know, I don't know what I would have done if I'd taken it, but I wound up getting a job flipping burgers or maybe working in the sporting goods department or whatever they needed me to do. And uh, I wound up posting some questions on an internet forum about fishing the Firehole River early in the season because all my Yellowstone fishing experience had been later on in the season. And uh, a guy who had previously worked for Richard Parks, the owner of the fly shop where I work now, actually emailed me and said it sounded like I knew what I was doing and I should contact him instead because he was looking for a shop clerk and trainee guide. And so I did and got the job. And uh, the, you know, one fun summer kind of has turned into, what, 15 years now. That's fantastic. I just remember the first time I realized that there was no more summers. Like, you had to go to work in a suit and tie in D.C. in the heat and humidity was like the biggest wake up call for me ever. Yeah. I, I really was not into that. Yeah. I was never really on that track. Um, I actually have two master's degrees too. And, uh, so I was thinking maybe to be the, go on the professor route, but, and you know, I would definitely have gone the rumpled professor route where I didn't have to dress like that, but yeah, I couldn't take an office. It's no bueno. All right. So, um, Let's talk about the, the, the this Parks Fly Shop. Um, if you want to go over the history of it, it's on it's on the website. But this is story hour for everybody. So if you want to sure. kind of break down the whole whole history behind of it, it's, it's it's been there for a while. Yeah, Parks Fly Shop is. I'm not sure it's the oldest uh, fly shop in a Yellowstone border community, but if it's not the oldest, it's the second oldest. Um, it was wow. established in 1953 by Merton Parks. Uh, who had moved out here with his family from Minnesota. And then he died in 1970 and his son, Richard Parks took it over and he's been running it ever since. So it's uh it's 60, gonna, this is the 60, 62nd year it's been open. 61st year. It's been wow. Anglers. So. And there's still the, like the website says you've got this old register. Yeah. Um, if, if any of your listeners have been in the shop, they've seen it. It's uh like a 1920s, vintage register i mean we, we just use it as a cash drawer basically but uh it it's got a, a wooden drawer and wooden some wooden appointments and then the rest of the appointments are like this aluminum that's like painted to look like aluminum or i mean i'm sorry painted to look like wood and uh about one in 20 people who come in say oh that's a cool cash register and, and my boss is always like well do you want to buy it do you want to buy it and uh because you know it's a it's an antique but it's not a very functional antique but it, it definitely gets some some remarks. And I like how on the website it says, for directions, it's just south of the bridge. Where else can you have that kind of direction? It's, oh, yeah, south of the bridge. Yeah. Um, people are going to find it? Well, Gardner's a small town. I mean, and the summer population is just over 1,000, and the winter population is more like half of that. And uh, so the Yellowstone River, you know, this is in the Rocky Mountains, and so all the roads follow bodies of water. And if you get off the interstate in Livingston, uh, that's I-90, and then head south, we're 53 miles south of Livingston, and there are two bridges over the Yellowstone in that distance, uh, where the main 
highway crosses the, the river. And that's, uh, so we're on US 89. And so US 89 follows the river all the way down from Livingston, crosses it twice. And the second time it crosses it as you head south is right in the middle of Gardner. And so we're, you know, half a block past that. You ever read the uh, the Bill Bryson book, A Short History of Nearly Everything? I have not read that, and I'm curious why you asked me that. Yeah, so it has a whole section on Yellowstone, and that it's the world's largest crater active volcano. And basically, if it ever erupts, like the entire park is a crater, that like all life on Earth as we know it will be gone. Yeah, well, not, it, it's fascinating. Not all life as we know it. Um, all human civilization would be in trouble for sure. Um, so the, the, basically if you look at a map of Yellowstone, you'll see Yellowstone Lake is 77,000 acres. It's the largest Alpine Lake in North America. Uh, one of the larger natural lakes in Western North America. And it, uh, or at least in the Western United States, those, those lakes up in Western Canada are a lot bigger, but it's, that basically fills the bottom of the caldera. And then the okay. cal- and then the caldera rim is essentially forty miles by fifteen, is what I've heard. And and for comparison's sake, Mount St. Helens is something like one hundred and fifty yards across. Okay. So forty miles by fifteen miles versus one hundred and fifty yards. I mean, you can see the the problem if uh, if that decides to erupt again. But on the Absolutely. on the plus side, we've got you know it's there's constant minor earthquakes, and if it was going to erupt, there'd be constant major earthquakes for probably months or years ahead of time. So uh, conspiracy theorists to the contrary, it's, it's done not looking like it's going to erupt anytime soon. All right. Well, I'll have to get out there before it does. I have not been out to Yellowstone since uh, the fire years at 88. That was 88. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was when I was out there. That's a lot different. My wife doesn't want to go. I'm like, there's like bison in the middle of the road and there's moose and bears and just big animals. And she's like, eh, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, I have elk in my backyard pretty routinely, and I live in the, Jeez. I live in the middle of town. I live in a rented house in the middle of town. Wow. So, I mean, it, it sounds better than it is because mostly what they do is just crap in my yard. <laughs> and they're not like uh, Santa's reindeer or unicorns that that poop out jelly beans. Uh, no, I don't recommend eating it. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get let's talk some fishing. Um, all right, so we, we you work in the park. Uh, I got to look at my notes here. Uh, what's the fishing culture like? You know, it's, she said it's seasonal, um, so I'm guessing wintertime it's like snowmobile, cross country crowd. Spring, summer, I guess after the mud, it's a fishing crowd. Yeah, it, well, Gardner's kind of interesting. It's changing a lot. Just it, really in the last five years, it started to change a lot. It started to get a lot more touristy. Um, previous Gardner is five, six miles from Mammoth Hot Springs, which is the park. Oh, it stinks. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't smell it here, but it, but Mammoth is the park headquarters. And so for a long time, we had a lot of tourist traffic, but we also had the people who worked directly for the park rather than running a tourist oriented business directly. And so it, it felt more like an actual community than a lot of the other, you know, Jackson or, or West Yellowstone or Cody's and the places where literally everybody had to make money off the tourists. And so that was really nice. And that's kind of changing because really this was the last underdeveloped um, border community. And so we're getting a lot more general tourism now. But for whatever reason, Gardner isn't as popular a fishing destination as West Yellowstone is. 
Uh, West Yellowstone has, oh boy, let's see, something like six fly shops, and I may be missing one, but I'm, I, I don't think I am. I think they have six fly shops right now, and we're the only full-time fly shop in, in Gardner. Uh, there's one other place that that uh, does raft trips and horseback rides and stuff too, and they've got some flies and uh, a couple of the gas stations and so on sell a few flies. But uh, we're the only actual dedicated fly shop in town, and even we run cross country skis in the winter. Is the town pretty welcoming? They, they know that's you know a good source of income. They're they're nice to out of towners. You know, it goes back and forth because I think just like any tourist community, it's we need the tourists, but we also kind of hate that fact because it. It gets old answering the same questions, and I mean, I've had you know people walking around in my yard taking pictures of animals and and trying to walk down to the river and stuff through my yard, and that's really not appropriate. Yeah, you got to respect people's property. We have we live on a golf course, so they're always like, besides breaking our windows, they're always just walking around urinating in like the shrubs out front, um, leaving golf balls everywhere and divots in our front yard. And it's not, you know, the golf course property ends 30 feet up the hill, but they don't really care. They'll drive their, their golf carts down here and do donuts in the grass. It sucks. Yeah, I've yet to run into that problem, thankfully. Yeah. So. All right. Um, so what's the, you know, you're out in the West. So I'm assuming you've got pretty cold winters, mild to hot summers, um, pretty good snowpack, too. Is, is like the fishing revolve a lot around the weather? Oh, absolutely. Um, so our talking about Yellowstone in particular, rather than the Missouri River, which is where I do most of my other guiding, um, the Yellowstone area in particular is very heavily dependent on snowpack. Uh, Gardner is actually a technically a high desert climate because we're in kind of a rain shadow here. Uh, we've got an 11,000, almost 11,000 foot peak just to the west that kind of sucks up a lot of the moisture. And so we're, we've actually got cactus and stuff like that around town. Uh, not right in town, but, you know, you take a walk over to the to the Yellowstone and you're walking across a flat where you've got prickly pear cactus all over the place. And so we get most we, – we don't necessarily get most of our precipitation in the winter, but the fact that it, it snows in the high country, it sticks around, and then it melts in May and June, that's what gives us our summer water and, uh, and keeps the water nice and high and cold through the summer. So we have a, a runoff situation – um, the different fisheries inside Yellowstone Park vary greatly when they clear from runoff. Um, some stuff down on the west side of the park, particularly the Madison River inside Yellowstone, and then its uh, primary sources, the Firehole and the Gibbon River, they drain some lower elevation mountains and have a couple headwaters lakes and also receive a lot of geyser runoff. And so they, they you know, they, they're muddy until basically the beginning of the park season, which is the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend. And then the stuff across the northern end here, which is the, the prime kind of summer, early fall water, um, that comes into play. Usually, you know, it depends a little bit on the river and the year, but sometime between the 20th of June and the 10th of July, most water across the northern end of Yellowstone becomes fishable um, because it drains a much higher elevation mountains and uh, just gets more snow and uh, doesn't receive that, that geyser water to warm it up and clear it up like the fire hole and the gibbon do. Okay. Can you explain to those who don't know about uh, rain shadows, how, what the dynamic is of the water going, the moisture going up and not coming down the other side? 
Sure. Well, I mean, I'm not sure about the meteorolo- meteorological aspects of it, but basically the weather systems here are coming from somewhere to the west of us. You know, depending on the weather, it's coming from the southwest or the northwest. And so it hits that, that taller mountain, dumps all the snow or the rain on the west side and maybe just over the peak of that, that mountain. And so then it skips over our fairly narrow, uh, deep V-shaped valley and just doesn't have enough moisture to dump directly on our heads. And then you get a little bit further east and it starts, starts snowing again. So, and I'm looking at you know, Google Maps. It's Gardner's Brown. You got yeah, like you said, it's green to the left or the west, and then green to the the east. But in the middle there, it's just I could definitely see why you'd have cactus in there. Yeah, and uh, that that really is just Gardner. You get twenty miles north into Paradise Valley, and it's you know it's still fairly arid this ranch country, but uh, you know in terms of having lots of sagebrush and, and cactus and things like that, that's here. It does green up quite a bit in May and June, you know, which is basically spring here. That's a late spring. Yeah, it's well, this year it's kind of been spring for the last week, but thankfully that's about to end. We've, uh, it's, it's gusting. We got like 30 mile an hour gusts. I think we're going to have like a low of nine tomorrow. Yeah, and we're going to have a low of maybe just below freezing tonight. It was 50 degrees here today. Wow. And, uh, and it was in Livingston, it was close, pushing 60. So. But the, the higher elevation snowpacks held up pretty good. We've got about average snowpack basically right now. I'm just glad we're not in Boston. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd uh, 70. I'd, uh, I'd like to get their snow right now, actually. Good. Yeah, my wife is complaining because she's going out to visit um, her parents in Colorado next week, and they're just not getting the snow that, that they're expecting to have this time of year. Yeah, it was. It's been a weird winter because we had some really cold weather in November, and then another cold shot in December, and then a few really heavy storms. But then, other than that, it's been fairly thin. But despite that, the snowpack still registers it being like 110, 115 percent in the Yellowstone drainage. So I don't, I don't really get that. I don't. I definitely don't see it at the ski hill. So you also ski out there? Yeah. I well, I mostly snowboard, but uh, yeah, I uh, in the winter I work in the shop some. And, uh, you know, this is when I do the website and, uh, promotional stuff and so forth. I tie a lot of flies, but I I do have, we'll get into that. I do have quite a bit more time off in the winter. And so, uh, I fish some in the winter, but you know, I can fish in the summer. I can't snowboard in the summer. So I go to, go to Bridger Bowl, which is near Bozeman. Okay. Um, so let's start talking about the rivers. We'll break them all down. So the Yellowstone, Madison and Missouri are the three big ones. Those are the three major ones. Um, I don't personally guide much at all. In fact, I'm not licensed on the Madison. Um, I guide sources of the Madison inside the park. But, the, okay. yeah, I mean, in terms of the things that people coming to the greater Bozeman area, shall we say, that really, those are the three big ones, especially if you're looking to float. Um, all right. So let's talk about your, uh, your home waters there that you guide on. Okay. Well, I guide on, I kind of do four different things and I'll, I'll kind of talk about, talk about them in order, I guess. Um, I guide inside Yellowstone park. Uh, those are all walk and wade trips because, uh, drift boat trips are not allowed in the park. There's two lakes in the park that you're allowed to use power boats on. Um, but all flowing water in the park is walk and wade only. And so I guide, I guide in Yellowstone park and then just downstream of the park, um, 
the famous section of the Yellowstone for drift boat fishing begins. And so those drift boat trips on the Yellowstone River outside the park uh, are kind of the second component of what I do. And then the third component um, is I actually run powerboat trips on the Missouri River. And that's, that's primarily a spring gig for me because that's, that's just when that's the best. And then I do a few trips on private waters uh, in the region, particularly ranch lakes. Uh, we've got some famous spring creeks here, but I actually tend to fish those ranch lakes more. So what species of fish are we finding between the flowing water and the still waters? Well, that varies more by where you happen to be standing. Um, I'll just talk about the fishing in Yellowstone first, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So in Yellowstone Park, the native fish are grayling, whitefish, and two, two subspecies of cutthroats. Uh, the Yellowstone cutthroats, mostly in the Yellowstone drainage, and then the West Slope cutthroats in the what amounts to the Missouri River drainage, which is the up, extreme upper Madison and the extreme upper Gallatin rivers. And for my personal area of operations, that basically means the native fish I'm fishing for are grayling, whitefish, and especially the cutthroats. And then Yellowstone Park also has kind of the full gamut of other um, trout species we have in the United States. Uh, rainbows, of course, browns, uh, brook trout, and then, uh, and then uh, lake trout, unfortunately. Right. So, so lake trout, number one. Uh, enemy and then do you guys want to get rid of the brookies as well well in some waters yes the in fact in some waters even the rainbows are kind of considered invasive basically yellowstone fisheries um, management policy focuses on protecting and when possible restoring natives and so there's some in the lamar drainage which is the major tributary drainage of the yellowstone river inside yellowstone park there's actually an effort underway to get rid of the rainbows there to keep that a pure cutthroat fishery. Um, and then there's a few other places where like little mountain Creek kind of situations where they make would make excellent cutthroat habitat. And right now they have brookies and they're clearing out the brookies to put cutthroats back in. And then there's some other areas like the Firehole, the Madison, the Gibbon, um, some of the other areas where there either weren't any native fish or they're really, weren't very many, and uh, nowadays the population is either all non-native or very thoroughly mixed. And there, the the non-natives are basically tolerated. Okay. And let's see where we're at. Um, so, what kind of gear are you guys using for these fish? It really so got, de- you know, like, go ahead. De- it's it's species specific, river specific. It's very much river specific. Um, Yellowstone Park has a huge variety of fisheries. I mean. You could fish a different place and meet an almost a different style every day of the season if you wanted to. Um, I recommend to people that you bring two rods if you're looking to fish in the park, uh, nine foot six weight, and then an eight and a half to nine foot three to five weight. And that nine foot six weight is kind of the lightest rod that can almost do everything. Uh, we're going to use that like on the, the main stem of the Yellowstone inside the park, uh, bigger, heavier waters where we're going to have more turbulent current or, you know, longer casts, bigger flies. Um, we do a lot of fishing for fall run brown trout inside Yellowstone park and we're fishing streamers and big snowfly nymphs and things like that. And if you have lighter gear, it just doesn't work for that. And then that lighter rod, the eight and a half foot, three to five weight, that's going to be what you're going to use on small streams. Uh, some of the more technical, uh, broke up there. 
Okay. You said some of the more technical? Yeah, some of the more technical meadow streams. Um, okay. Like the Firehole River, the Madison River inside Yellowstone, uh, the Lamar system. It, those are much flatter, lower gradient streams with not necessarily clearer water, but generally slower water, smaller insects, uh, the kind of places where you just have to be a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit uh, a little bit more delicate about how you approach the fish. And so for those, a somewhat lighter rod is good. And then, of course, if you're fishing a little mountain creek that's 10 feet wide uh, and has 8-inch trout in it, you don't really need a big thunder stick for that. Thunder stick, I like the term. Uh, so we'll get into flies later. That's going to be a big portion of our talk later on. Um, you said when you're out of the park, you're using boats. What, what kind of boat are you using? Yeah, I, uh, I really, these days, actually probably do more boat trips than walk trips. And I have two boats. I have, for the Yellowstone River and other situations where I'm doing unpowered trips, I have a, a, a clock craft drift boat. And uh, then my other boat is a Stealthcraft Power Drifter. And that's got that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know you like those crafts. Um, and it's it's an 18 foot. Basically, looks like a jet boat or looks like a drift boat with the back end chopped off and a big jet engine on the back. What horsepower are you using? It's 40 horse at the pump. Oh wow! So, yeah, I've got a 9.9. Mine just kind of puts around. Yeah, um, it, it definitely sucks the gas, but uh, you know you need some guys are running 80s up there, so. Jeez, but it gets you to where you need to be. Right, it definitely gets me where I need to be. And the nice thing about it is, uh, it's a big enough boat I can actually take three clients in it if I have to. And uh, that big engine will get it on plane with uh, with you know five hundred pounds of dude. Do you uh, do you guys do lunches for them? Or they got to bring their own? Yeah, I mean, on uh, all the trips through Parks Fly Shop, everything's included except licenses and tips, of course. Um, so we, we provide lunch, we provide rods and reels if needed. We're going to start providing waiting gear this year, provide our flies. And then on my trips that I run through my own business, which is Yellowstone country fly fishing. Um, I don't provide waiters because I just, you know, I don't have a, the resources of a shop to have 15 different sizes of waiters. Yeah. That's, I got a pair of boot foot tens that now are starting to leak. And then I get a lot of clients with like size 14 shoes. Yeah, and I just don't want to have to get like waiters that you know are going to get used three times a year for that person. It's it's funny you say that about the clients with size fourteen feet because we're getting more and more clients with really big feet. It's it's and strange. It's, my, my boss has size eight shoes, and he, he's wow, really surprised by this. It's all like eighth grade boys. I don't know what they're feeding them. They're enormous. These kids will show up, and I'm like, "What are you like, sophomore, junior in high school?" And they're like, "No, I'm like in seventh grade, sir." Like, I, my God, dude, you're huge. Like, I'm up to their elbows. Yeah, I'm a short, I'm a short fellow myself, so I definitely, definitely feel that. Um, particular fly lines you guys use out there? I mean, probably any like brand specific things that are more uh, is better suited to your situation. You know, I'm not really a brand guy. Um, I tend to use a lot of Rios, just because they have a pretty, a pretty good range, and I can get them. Um, Except in the really delicate kind of situations, we're generally fishing weight-forward lines. Uh, sort of the fact of life in Montana is wind, and a weight-forward line is going to punch into that a lot better. But, uh, yeah, I mean, a weight-forward six-weight and then a double-taper four-weight, you know, th that'll, that'll cover most of your bases. And you don't need to worry about, 
you know, whether or not your, your line is bright or dull or anything like that. The fish aren't that spooky. Nice. And do you have like rods pre-rigged in the boat ready to go when clients show up or do you guys kind of sit out, see what's going on, have like, you know, maybe that, that a streamer depends. rod? Um, yeah, that sort of depends. I'm usually in the drift boat. I'm usually carrying a spare rod that's rigged with um, a streamer, a dropper nymph, and an indicator, which is kind of an odd rig. Uh, you know, most of your most of your listeners probably haven't uh, encountered something like that. And I'll have that ready to go as a change-up rod. But then otherwise, in the Yellowstone area, generally speaking, we're going to rig up as needed because we fish such a wide variety of places, we're not exactly sure what we're going to need to use. And then up on the Missouri, um, my, my powerboat trips up there, I do tend to have at least one and usually two rods rigged for that. Uh, as you know, those stealth crafts have a lot of uh, rod space. And up there, I'm typically running a pretty long leader, I'm usually running a 12-foot 5X leader. And so I like to have a 10-foot rod so that you can fish deep and still get the fish up to the boat without having the rod tip running into the indicator. And so I'm running a, I'm fishing a 10 foot rod, um, for that. And the flies don't change quite as abruptly up there. And so I usually have those rigged. So it seems like there are a lot of variables that you go through based on like weather, where you're taking clients, um, size of their feet, et cetera. How long did it take you to figure all of this out? You said you got there in 99. Well, I, um, how, I got here in 2001 to permanently. I, uh, I started fishing up here in 93, and then the last time I fished before I came, before I started working out here, the last time I fished up here was 99. But, I mean, if you get a guide who says he knows everything and, and there's nothing more to get, learn, you need to not use that guide because there's yeah. always something else to learn. Um, I feel like I really got good in the drift boat. I mean, I think I got pretty good on foot within the first couple of years. Uh, I think I got good in the drift boat beginning in 2008. And the biggest change was that I got a lot louder about telling people what to do. You know, I, the, one of the big things on the Yellowstone River, especially the upper 20 miles of it or so, you know, we drop out of the spring runoff around the 4th of July most years. And at that point, the river is still kind of an olive brown color. It's up right in the edge of the willow bushes. It's running really hard. And we've got the salmon fly hatch underway. And all of those factors push the fish towards the bank. And so the biggest thing in success, at least early in the season, when you're trying to catch fish on dry flies on the Yellowstone River, is putting the bugs four inches off the bank. And that is the single biggest factor is getting it closer to the bank. And until I realized that I'd have to tell people that 200 times a day, some days people would be casting close enough and doing all right. Some days they'd be fishing further off and they wouldn't do all right. It sounds like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Like they're either one... Too far out, too far in, and just not enough right in the, the sweet spot. Yeah, I mean, early in the season, as close to the bank as possible without getting hung up is usually where you want to be, at least when your fishing dries. Now, later in the season, the, as the water drops and clears, the fish move off the bank, and usually what we're looking for are current seams. Um, frequently, it's that first current seam off the bank. Sometimes it's the one beyond that. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's especially on the Yellowstone, which tends to be pretty deep and fast and not really hold very many fish right in the middle. Um, it's all about finding that sweet spot where the fish are off the bank. And that's, that's and basically did, depending on, that basically depends on current and uh, current and to a degree on clarity, but 
I think current's probably the single biggest factor because you also have a powerful river. And so they have to find that balance between where the current's slow enough from bank friction and boulder for them to rest, but also still fast enough for them to get plenty of food. That sounds like a lot more technical stuff than we're used to out here. You know, once you get it dialed, it's dialed. It stays dialed. Right. But it's, yeah. Um, one of my coworkers had a trip over the summer where he had his, he got his clients getting the fish six and getting the bugs six inches off the bank pretty routinely. And they caught a lot of fish. I can't remember how many said the boat that came out in after them caught two fish all day. And it was because they'd been fishing about two feet further off the bank. What kind of wildlife can you got other than the fish? What can you guys expect to see in a day out there? That really depends on if we're now, of course, in Yellowstone Park, we're going to see a lot more wildlife than we are outside in Montana, usually. Um, Yellowstone has been called America's Serengeti, and uh, so there's there's a lot of critters in the park. And it re- so it really depends on how far we're driving, how far we're hiking, and, of course, whether we're inside the park or outside the park. You know, if we're driving out 40 miles into the Lamar River drainage um, from our shop, we could see everything from elk and bison, which we see those pretty much every day, uh, to pronghorn, uh, black bears, grizzly bears. Once in a while, we'll see a wolf. Um, it's we can see just about everything. We, in fact, we're legally required to carry bear spray. Wow. So, you know, you've been out there long enough that you see something like that. Um, does it still shock you when you see? a huge bear or that, that lone wolf that's out there. Like you said, elk are in your backyard. Um, are you still, does it still, you know, get to you that there's that awesome wildlife that you're surrounded by? It depends on the situation. If, if I'm just driving someplace and I see some elk, it really doesn't get to me. And I'm usually more annoyed at the traffic jam than anything else. <laughs> but if I'm, especially if I'm on foot in the backcountry somewhere, um, we do a lot of hiking trips. If I'm, you know, on the opposite side of the first ridge from the road, and I see a bear 150 yards away from me across the across the river or something. That's still impressive. And you know, seeing a seeing a wolf in the backcountry is really impressive because, I, I, in all honesty, the best way to see a lot of animals is to just drive places and look for people with spotting scopes and binoculars because there's yeah. something out there. Um, I think on the road, really, the thing that would most excite me would be a mountain lion, which I've never seen. Yeah, I'd want to see that from afar. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. There's actually not, there's actually more more elk in Yellowstone Park than there are deer. And so there aren't a huge number of mountain lions in the park. My boss has been here since 1953. He was 10 years old when he moved here. And he's seen three. My goodness. Uh, and of course, I still get excited when I see a rattlesnake. That's, uh, that's, that's only happened, happened a couple times. I, I don't want there to do that again. When I was in high school, there was this old timer in my TU chapter He'd always say that they would bite first and then rattle. Like he'd been bitten you know, like over a dozen times at that point. Um, yeah. Have you had any close encounters? No. Um, in fact, Yellow, I, I shouldn't have even mentioned rattlesnakes because it's not something that you really have to worry about out here, at least not up in the park. Um, Gardner is right at a mile in elevation, and at this latitude, the uh, rattlesnakes just can't live very much higher than this. I've, I've seen one actually behind the shop and then one – that was sunning itself on a rock uh, on the Gardner River about a half mile from my house. So I, I, I did get buzzed at by the one behind the shop, and uh, I levitated and flew about 20 feet. Okay, so I want to move on now to the Yellowstone Country flies. So uh, Parks Fly Shop, you have commandments of fly design. 
So I want to talk about this book. Um, it's it's in depth. You've pretty much covered everything that some of that, you know, if they just want to learn about flies and fly design, this book pretty much is going to cover it. Uh, so can you start off with those, uh, five, I think it's five commandments? Well, I wrote that book almost uh, a couple years ago now, and I kind of can't remember them. Um, but <laughs> I have them if you need a refresher. Okay. Well, I'll just introduce I, I've been. I actually have a master's degree in English, and uh, in fact, I wrote my master's thesis about fly fishing in the Yellowstone River drainage. And I've written two books. Um, the first one is a dedicated fly tying manual for custom flies, either produced by tires in my shop or people who are kind of in the local area affiliated with my shop. And so it's the book is Yellowstone Country Flies: uh, The Fly Patterns of Parks Fly Shop. And I, I go over about fifty of our, our custom flies in there and then uh, include some introductory matter that includes some commandments of fly design. So right, well, I'll lay those out now yeah. for those who are listening. You have uh, one fly. And we'll go, I guess we could go through each one. Uh, sure. I'll name them first. Flies must have a purpose. Flies must have uh, appeal to the fish. The flies must appeal to the angler. They should not have any extraneous features and they should be durable. Right. So how did you how did you come up with with those? I think the biggest thing is that I'm both a commercial tire and a guide, and so while I tie several thousand flies each year in the winter, I also wind up doing a lot of filling tying in the summer when we, you know, we we all of a sudden a certain pattern's working great, we sell out of them. I have to tie more for my trip tomorrow, and so that's guided a lot of my fly design, um, and and really everybody out here. I mean. Certainly, Parks, Parks Fly Shop has a lot of custom flies. I mean, pretty close to half of our flies are tied or designed in-house. But there's a lot of other shops that do a lot of this, too. And so in terms of appealing to the fish, I mean, the, the need for that is obvious. If you aren't catching any fish on it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't deserve a place on the bin. Um, but it, it's got to appeal to the angler as well because – you're going to have more confidence in something that you like that either looks good or looks buggy or looks like it's, you know, sculpting pattern that's going to swim off the table. If, if you feel strongly about the pattern or if you're just picking it up out of the bins and you think it looks attractive, you're going to tie it on. You're actually going to use it. And that's actually maybe the most important thing because if you don't tie it on. It can't catch the fish. And then in terms of the durability, that, goes right down to my guiding. Um, if a fly unravels after two fish, I'm going to need to tie another one that night and go through two dozen in a day of fishing. And, uh, you know, I like, I, I do like sitting and tying flies in the window of this fly shop for tourists to take pictures of me, but I'd rather not be doing it until 1030 every night. And so I tend to use a lot of adhesives, uh, super glue, things like that in my tying to get those flies that are going to hold up. I've had, you know, I mean, obviously if a fish's tooth gets in the bad spot on any fly, it's going to rip it up. But some of my dry flies, I've had people catch as many as 30 or 40 fish on before they fall apart. You have a preference for your, your adhesives. Are you like a clear cure guide? Do you like, like I'm holding Loctite right now to have on my uh, table. I've been gluing Cohen's frog legs into Rainy's float foam for gutless frogs. So I'm going to play with, see how strong Loctite can be with these guys. Yeah. Um, I use, I, I would use more of the clear cure goose kind of stuff, except that I tie flies in the window in the sunlight. And so <laughs> that every time I, I get a bottle of that stuff, it, you know, it's not cheap, even, even on pro deals. Yeah. 
And so it gels up on me. You know, if I'm t- I tend to use that a lot more when I'm tying like bass flies or something, if I'm going back home to fish for smallmouth or something. But I tend to use what I use the most is crazy blue. Um, I get a, you know, Zappagap has a brush model now, but I, I, I don't really think Zappagap is any snazzier than any of the other super glues. And, uh, so I get a just crazy glue from Walmart and I cut about two thirds of the brush off. You know, I, I take my old scissors and cut about two thirds of the bristles out of the brush so that it's a much finer pointed brush. And, uh, that's what I use as my main adhesive. I'll use that as head cement. I'll use it to secure foam bodies on the hooks use it for tons of things. In fact, I wrote a magazine article about it a couple of years ago. What have you glued to yourself? I have glued everything to myself. Uh, the worst is when I, I drop the bottle. Because I, I use, a, I, like I said, I use the, the version with a brush cap. So I take the cap off and brush it on my fly. And a couple times a year, I'll hit the bottle and knock it onto myself. And so I'll glue my jeans to my right. leg. And, that's, <laughs> and then obviously that pair of jeans is shot because the uh, the super glue is stiff, and so I've got this big plank of, of denim that's rock hard now. So yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah, glue. The glue is the glue is definitely. A, so your thoughts? You they got to appeal to the fish and the angler. If you're tying something like a mouse pattern, you put whiskers, ears, and eyes on it. I have never in my life tied a mouse fly. Um, I think you're getting at the things that are extraneous on uh, yes. on flies. Yes, exactly. Again, that goes to the the guiding thing. Um, any extra step on a fly is, you know, taking another twenty seconds of my time. And uh, over the course of tying eight thousand flies each winter, which is actually a lot less than some people, um, you know, it still adds up to a lot of time. So, I, for that that reason, a lot of my mayfly patterns anymore are cripples. Um, I use a you know, a synthetic fiber Zilon or Sparkle Emerging Yarn or something like that for a tail rather than tying in a real nice pretty tail of, of uh, hackle fibers or whatnot because just because it's easier to use. And uh, I tend to do wing single wing posts rather than divided wings on my mayflies, again, because it, it doesn't seem to make any difference and it's a lot faster that way. And uh, so, yeah, just, I mean... I think that probably the biggest thing is to, you know, take a pattern, take an established pattern that you like and see what you can cut out of it to make it still work. If, uh, if you're on YouTube and you, by you, I mean your, your listeners, um, go on YouTube and look for Minch's hair and copper nymph, the bead hair and copper nymph. Um, I do, I haven't done any for quite a while, but I used to do quite a few, tying videos on YouTube and the bead hair and copper nymph looks a great deal like a standard gold ribbed hairs here, but it's cut down dramatically and uh, it's actually about twice as effective in my experience. Yeah. I'm all about reducing as much stuff as possible. I'm all about the Mead's gutless frog right now. And it is, it takes three wraps to tie it. That's it. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. It's, it's a simple fly. And then you just, Put Zuddy's leg puller through it, pull rubber legs through it, and you're done. Yeah, I, I actually listened to that podcast where you, the maybe the last one where you're talking about that, and I I've never yeah. caught a fish on a frog, but that sounds like a good one to try. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to find alternate sources for the foam because um, from Rainey's, it's like I mean I'm as a guide, Rainey's says like hundred dollars 
minimum for a purchase. And I'm like, dude, that's that's a lot of foam. Yeah, that's so a I'm lot trying of to get uh, get other places. But also, you're saying how many flies you tied? Do you ever use fly shack hooks? Um, no, I tend to use. I'm a contract fly designer for Montana Fly Company, and so right. that's primarily what I use. And uh, and then I can also get stuff uh, diariki hooks, pretty cheap. Okay. Um, working working yeah. for a fly shop helps in that regard. Right. Yeah, cause I use them because they're it's seven bucks for a hundred hooks. Yeah, that's not bad. That's, yeah. Uh, um, and that's that's retail. Yeah. Wow, that's cheap for retail. Oh yeah, and then if you look in like your fishing catalog or fish like fly fisherman, there's a ten percent off coupon if you spend like forty bucks, you get free shipping. And they have barbless already. Um, they now have intruder hooks. You get a hundred intruder hooks for seven dollars. Yeah, that's that's amazing. It's uh, it's been I've a while. Had one since bend I, on me. Wow, it's been a while since I tried to tie an intruder. Oh yeah, I tried getting on MFC, and uh, yeah, they didn't they didn't even respond to me. I had to go track them down, and they're like, "Yeah, we didn't like your flies." It's like, all right. Yeah, I mean, so, to make you feel better, they don't like about two thirds of my flies <laughs> either. So, uh, what it is I, about that one one third that they do like? You know, that's a good question because you know it's some of the flies that. I think it's just got to do something radically different from what they already sell because, you know, they, they can only have so many variations on a copper John or whatever. And, mm-hmm. uh, that, and I mean, I think it definitely helps to already be famous. You know, I mean, if John Barr comes up with a new pattern of any kind, of course, he's probably going to pick it up because they're going to be able to sell them just because it's got his name on it. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. I mean, MSC picks up a couple of my patterns every couple of years and then, you know, Maybe drops it after a couple of years if it's not selling. But I'd be coming up with new flies anyway, and so why not submit them? I'm doing a road trip tomorrow with my friend Miles up to Baltimore, and he just got a fly picked up by the Orvis. So I want to—it's the Orvis Soft Spoon. So I want to see how that's going for him. See if he's getting any royalties on that. Is that like a, a time? Is that like a redfish fly? Yeah, I mean I've seen him catch largemouth on it down here in the city on the Potomac. Um, it's like a silly skin spoon. I don't know how he does it, That's but cool. yeah, he wobbles all around. Yeah, it's su- super lightweight, and you can probably throw that thing with a two, or three weight oh. for largemouth or whatever. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah. So, what are some of your favorite and most productive patterns for out there? Well, that's going to depend hugely on where I'm where I'm fishing or guiding. Um, probably, if we're talking about the Yellowstone River and Yellowstone National Park. Uh, my two favorite, my three favorite dry flies are going to be a purple haze cripple, a pink bob hopper, and my clackacatus. And uh, the purple cripple is—I came up with it, but it's such a conventional design that you know it's not that original. I just made it purple, and uh, that's what we use really heavily in the fall when we have uh, we have excellent blowing olive patches here in the fall. And rather than having a gray or grayish olive mayfly pattern, we fish a purple one, especially when it's cloudy. And a lot of your listeners may have heard of a pattern called the purple haze parachute, which is the most famous version. And this cripple outfishes it like three to one. And I, I think it's just because I see a lot more of the conventional pattern. And also because my pattern is a cripple, it's a little bit lower in the water and looks like a bug that isn't going to fly away. And then my pink bob hopper is a really tiny um, hopper pattern. It's actually tied on a size 14 normal length dry fly hook. It's less than an inch long. 
And that contrasts with the, the hoppers that most people fish around here, which are two to three times bigger. And I think the fish just really get a little bit nervous about those bigger hoppers, but they still like the little ones. And for whatever reason, the pink color for the last about five years has just been ridiculous. It's been by far the most effective color for hoppers. Um, you know, you'll find some real hoppers out in the bushes that have kind of a fail, a faint rose cast to their belly, but not bright, you know, baby doll pink. It's baby gum or a uh, bubble gum. Yeah. It's, it's a really vivid pink. I mean, I don't, I really don't know why the fish like that. Um, I don't question them. Yeah, I just, you just get, you take it for what it is. Yeah. Well, and especially for dry flies, I mean, what does that imitate? Because the other, the third dry fly pattern I really like is my clacacatus, um, which is kind of a combination of Coachman Trude or Royal Coachman Trude. And if you if you are familiar with a Royal Wolf, a Trude takes a wolf's wings and puts them down like a caddis or a stonefly. Um, so it's a combination of that pattern and then the iris caddis, which is a, a caddis emerger pattern by Craig Matthews in West Yellowstone. And so I combine features of, of those two patterns to make sort of a load riding attractor dry fly. And, uh, and that one works really good for us during caddis hatches and then just as an attractor afterwards. And then if we're talking about nymphs, that bead hair and copper nymph I mentioned a little while ago, um, that one is spectacular. So that's probably my favorite nymph in Yellowstone Park um, in sizes 12 to 16. It's sort of an all-purpose nymph. It looks like a caddis. It looks like a, a mayfly nymph. It, it may even look like a dead egg. Um, the originator, a guy named Matt Lynch, thinks that in the fall it may look like a dead egg. And then probably the other big nymph I fish the most is a, uh, is a brown girdle bug. Um, you, you may have heard it called a turd. And that's, that's just a, it's a stone, it's primarily a stonefly nymph. Um, a lot of our rivers here are mostly caddis and stoneflies rather than mayflies. And so having something big and nasty as a stonefly or as just a big, you know, irritant to fall run fish, uh, fall run brown trout is pretty crucial. And then if we're talking about up on the Missouri River, that's another place where the pink flies work really well. Pink firebead soft tackle sow bugs are excellent up there. And then a pink lightning bug. Uh, those are my kind of two spring flies up there, my two kind of go-to spring flies. And in the early summer months, I like, like in June and July, I like either a really skinny-bodied but flashy mayfly nymph. Uh, my favorite is called a BLM, which I believe the BLM stands for Bright Little Mayfly. And then uh, a small, like a size 16, squirmy wormy. Gotta love that worm. Yeah, I, uh, I just got turned on to those last year, but they definitely work. I was with a client, and of course, he's the only one who's of my clients ever to catch a snakehead. So I'm like, this guy's already on a pedestal. And we go to the Orvis shop, and he picks up the shaky worm, and he's like, dude, you have no idea. I was like, I'm never fishing that thing. He's like, no, seriously, you need to fish it. And then I started experimenting with all these, like the puffer balls, and then the spaghetti balls, and um, spaghetti ball, you can get them on Amazon and Office Playground. They're like $4, and it's a lifetime supply. And it's, oh my God, those fish tear them up. Yeah, I actually, uh, I heard you say that, or I think I, maybe I saw a video you made or something, and that's how I get my pink and chartreuse ones. But a basic yeah. red one, a basic red one works really well out there. My, uh, one of my buddy guides, a guy named uh, Josh Garris from Curtis Wright Outfitters in North Carolina, he turned me on to that fly, actually went fishing with me up on the Missouri, and uh, he ties it with 
just the red squirmy material out the back and the front and then a, a larva lace body. And that keeps it from unraveling as fast and uh, mm. gives it that segmentation. And I think that that's killer. Yeah, I wrap mine with wire. And then when you use the clear mono, it pulls the the rubber material into the grooves of the wire. And okay. it keeps it from like from moving. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Another one to try, I don't know if you use just basic sand lawnworms much, but uh, tie a sand lawnworm with, or even a, even a, a squirmy, with a brown tail, black thread covered in, probably cure, clear cure would be the best, body, and then a red head. There's three, hmm. three different colors on a sand lawnworm. It's like a Neapolitan uh, ice cream sandwich. Absolutely. Different colors, though. Yeah. yeah I tie, my sand lawnworms now are like four to five inches long. And largemouth will just destroy them. Yeah, well, it's like a plastic worm for, you know, I mean, uh, yeah. uh, my cousin is a bass guide in Missouri, and uh, some of the worms he uses, I mean, he's got worms that are like 18 inches long now. Yeah, we find those on the riverbanks. We think they're eels at first. They're huge. Yeah. You know? But it looks like, also, you know, I'm looking at your color palettes. You guys seem to be big fans of glass beads. Yeah, I am. And then a guy, another guy who, uh, who guides for us once in a while is as well. I, I use them on a soft tackle pattern, uh, soft tackle pheasant tail, that works just spectacular on the fire hole. Um, the fire hole river in Yellowstone Park, it's the first river in Yellowstone to be fishable. It's, it's often the only river in Yellowstone to be fishable when the season opens on uh, the Saturday Memorial Day weekend. It's, that's a perfect river for soft tackles. It's got a lot of caddisflies, and it's got a lot of long, moderate speed riffles. And you can cast your soft tackle out, straight out, swing it in a J-curve, and just catch tons of fish, especially when the caddis are emerging. And this little soft tackle pattern I tie is its really simple. its I started tying it because I couldn't tie a pheasant tail nymph properly at the time. It's just three or four strands of pheasant tail um, for the abdomen, gold wire, peacock curl, uh, India hen hackle, and then a glass bead. And it, it really works better with that glass bead. And I think it, I think it looks like a bubble carried by an emerging caddis fly or something like that because that one just works. And then there's a, a glass bead um, caddis pupa that I fish, and there's, there's quite a few of those out there nowadays. Um, but it's a gray caddis pupa. And I, in all honesty, I'm not even sure they're taking it as a caddis pupa, but that's kind of my emergency fly if I'm fishing the Lamar River or Soda Butte Creek, which are kind of the two, two, of, the, two of the five most famous summer waters in Yellowstone. And they're usually, you know, usually you go up there and you're fishing a hopper or an ant or you're matching a pale morning dun hatch or, or a green drake hatch. But sometimes in late summer when the sun is just beating down on your head and there's nothing going on, you can go into the deepest pool you can find and fish one of these gray caddis nymphs and pull out a couple fish. And uh, I think it's just the translucency of it and the fact that it looks different from a normal beadhead. Now on the other side spectrum, are you into the whole like articulation nation, like eight inch articulated streamers with beads in the middle and you know i don't fish articulated streamers as much as a lot of people um they're actually illegal in yellowstone park you're oh. you're allowed to have a fly however big you want it but you're only allowed to have one hook on it and so if you're fishing an articulated pattern you have to cut one of the hooks off and that kind of defeats the purpose now out on the yellowstone um i fish them somewhat more and uh but the limiting factor there frankly is the percentage of my clients who can cast them because if you've got it you've got an eight inch fly and your casting mechanics i mean not even an eight inch fly i mean a, a four inch fly you've got you've got to have perfect casting mechanics to cast that and 
Um, I've been hooked in the head enough that I don't really like that. And so my articulated patterns that I, I tie tend to be somewhat smaller and lighter weight um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, they're easier to cast. But then number two, um, you don't need a huge fly to interest a big fish. You need a big fly if you're fishing a streamer, but you don't need a huge one. And so I'll tie my squeech pattern, which is sculpin leech. It's a combination of the sculpin and leech pattern. Um, I tie that one so that it's about four inches long. And I, it's actually not an articulated fly. It's a conventionally tied fly with a stinger hook with beads on it. And if you've heard of a fly called a rattlesnake, um, which is a very similar pattern, that's where I got the idea. And I don't even tie the, the hook, the rear hook to my, uh, wing, which is a rabbit strip. I just let it hang freely because when you strip it, it's not going to tangle up. It's just going to hang back there. And that makes it a lot easier to tie. And so getting back to what I was saying, I mean, that I, I tie that fly specifically a little bit smaller because we'll get little fish to eat it as well. And so with that little stinger hook, if we get a 12 inch cutthroat that's chasing it and nipping at the tail, you can still hook that fish without braining it. And then you have a, a bigger hook on the front for those great big browns that hit it from the side and, and really slam it. Okay, so we've talked about the river fishing and the flies that work there. Let's go into some still waters. Okay. What are your favorite flies and are you taking the boat out on the still waters? Or are you kind of walking through marshy shorelines? That it, how we fish the lakes around here really depends on which lake we're talking about. Uh, there's a lot of hiking lakes in Yellowstone Park where, you know, it's a, if not a small pond necessarily, a place where you're fishing close to the bank. And uh, the grayling lakes in Yellowstone Park, are, that's basically what they are. You're, you're working very close to the shoreline because it's, it's early in the season. The fish are getting into the warmer, shallower water. And uh, some of your listeners, if they fished Yellowstone, may have heard of Grebe Lake or Cascade Lake. Those are the two main grayling lakes in the park. So for those, those waters, we're going to walk in and not even necessarily wade. We're going to be at most knee-deep. Um, and often casting relatively parallel to the shore because the fish are relatively close to the banks. And on those lakes, I tend to fish, you know, we might have a rise. We may have some fish eating midges or calabatus mayflies. And so if they're eating midges, a griffith gnat works great. If they're eating mayflies, a parachute atoms works great. But if we have to fish subsurface, what we're usually doing is fishing a small flashy nymph or a soft tackle uh, under a small indicator, and you just chuck it out there and you let it sit, and then about every 15 seconds, you give it about an 18-inch pull to move that fly just slightly. And that flashy soft tackle or nymph is going to sparkle a little bit when you move it like that. And mostly fish these grayling lakes inside Yellowstone Park. Sometimes we'll fish leeches and strip them. Sometimes we'll fish scuds and strip them. But usually it's fairly small, sparkly stuff that looks either like an emerging mayfly or an emerging midge. And then in the private ranch lakes, which are outside the park, they're basically farm ponds. Um, if anybody, especially in the eastern part of the country, has ever fished a farm pond, you know farm ponds make the biggest bass in bluegill. In Montana, it's a lot harder to make a pond, but you can do it. And since it's colder, you put trout in there. And so instead of making the biggest bass in bluegill, they make the biggest trout. And those, we're going to fish somewhat with the same flies, the sparkly, small beadheads uh, and, and soft tackles. But really the big thing we do there is fish chironomids, um, which are very large like midges, basically. If you're familiar with a zebra midge, 
if you stretch out a zebra midge to about a size 12 or 14, and especially give it a rib of pearl crystal flash rather than wire, and then a white bead, that's our number one fly on these lakes. And I've got it oh, scrolling up. Merle Lake Bomber Chronomid Series. Yeah. And, I mean, probably a million people have come up with that usage of crystal flash because a, a bomber is a simply a, a large coronamid pupa pattern with a white bead head because the uh, the gills of the coronamid pupae are white. And so that's what that bead imitates. Right. And then you cast that out underneath an indicator usually and just let it hang there and very occasionally give it a slow pull. It's really boring fishing until you hook one. But then, you know, the, some of these lakes are producing rainbows averaging 18 inches and, and uh, getting over three pounds pretty regularly. And occasionally we'll get a, a hatch on these lakes. They're very fertile. And so we'll get, again, either a Corona mid-hatch or a, uh, a Calabatus mayfly hatch. And that's when it's really fun because you can kind of push the boat around the lake with a, with a good angler in the front. And, okay, there's one at 2 o'clock. Lead them by five feet, you know. And you put your dry fly in front of them and then sight fish for these big rainbows and occasionally really big brook trout, actually. How big is a big brook trout for out there? Um, there's a couple hiking lakes in Yellowstone Park that can produce 20-inch brook trout. There's, <laughs> and then wow. the, the private lakes don't have as many brook trout as they do rainbows. But I've had the last three or four years, every year we've had somebody get one that was 16 to 18 inches in one of these private lakes. Now, don't bank on that because if you're if you're going brookie fishing in Yellowstone Park and fishing a little mountain creek, they're going to be the size of your hand. But uh, the, some of the lakes, particularly the ones that don't have a whole lot of fish in them, can produce some really big ones. It's just, you know, like they say, a goldfish in a small tank will stay that size. But if you put it in a big tank, it'll grow to fit that tank. Is it just the brook trout are there? They have more space and, and more available food. If you put a little brook trout in a big lake here, usually what happens is it makes a whole bunch more little brook trout. Um, it's really, I think, the water chemistry and the and things like that that factor in. And also, frankly, whether or not there's another fish in there to eat it. Because if you've got a bunch of lake trout or brown trout that, that are going to eat some of your smaller brookies, then that lets the ones that survive get bigger. For example, I, I, there are a handful of brook trout in the Yellowstone River here. The, the Yellowstone River, right near Gardner, is a mixture of cutthroats and rainbows with medium numbers of browns and then a lot of whitefish. But once in a great while, we'll find a brookie. And the first one I ever personally caught in the Yellowstone was 16 inches. And it just <laughs> shocked the hell out of me because, uh, number one, that it was a brook trout in the Yellowstone, and number two, that it was 16 inches. My goodness. That's two huge brook trout stories in the last two podcasts. The guys from Canada were saying at Somerset that they these brook trout will sit below a, I guess a dam, and these smelt will go through and get chopped up, and they just sit there and gorge on smelt and get to be like eight pounds. Yeah, these don't get that big. I mean, that would be wonderful if they did. I mean, I think yeah, probably the biggest I've ever heard about was like twenty-two inches around here, and that's one from one of those lakes in Yellowstone Park. Was that back in the day? Uh, with quote unquote, like back in my day. Agree, but not, you know, not a hundred years ago. I mean, this, it, you know, 25, 30 years ago, maybe. It's been a while since I've heard of one that big. It's get anything over. The biggest one I've ever caught has been like 18, 19. 
And with your time you've been out there, have you noticed you – know, I've read stories that the, the grayling are slowly becoming less and less populous you know, the further south you go in latitude. Um, I lost you a little bit there. Oh, that you know, I've read stories that the the population densities of grayling are decreasing the lower you go in latitude. Yeah, Have you noticed any of that? Um, that's especially true over on the Ruby River, which is the Ruby River, the Big Hole River, and the Beaverhead River are the major sources of the uh, Jefferson River, which is one of the three forks of the Missouri, the other two being the Madison and the Jefferson. I'm sorry, the Madison and the Gallatin. The Madison and the Gallatin start in Yellowstone. The Jefferson is further west. So the Ruby River in particular used to have a pretty fair number of grayling, and and my understanding is, yeah, they've really fallen off there. In Yellowstone Park, um, if anything, the grayling have actually expanded their range through human assistance because – being one of the native fish, they get the benefit of the doubt from the park. And uh, there's a lot of them in Grebe Lake and Cascade Lake and also another lake that isn't quite as friendly to anglers, uh, Wolf Lake. And I've, I've even caught a few in the Gibbon River. What about whitefish? Do you guys come out catching those? Like you have a huge bend in the rod, you pull it up. People are like, oh, darn, it's not a trout. But you're like, dude, that fish is like enormous. Yeah. Um, well, it's, the Yellowstone is interesting in that way. Um, so, okay, talk, going over the distribution of whitefish in my angling area, there aren't very many in the Yellowstone River upstream from Knowles Falls, which is about seven miles upstream from Gardner uh, in Yellowstone Park. So above that, you can go out and fish your, your nymph rig and not really catch very many whitefish. And in fact, if you get more than two or three miles upstream from that waterfall, you're probably not going to catch any at all. And then up in the Lamar drainage, there aren't any. Most of the Firehole River, there aren't any. Uh, most of the rivers in Yellowstone Park, there aren't any whitefish. If you get below those barriers to upstream migration, the various waterfalls, then all of a sudden you have a lot of them in most places. In the Yellowstone River, it's it's a great beginner fish, let me put it that way, because we can rig people with, you know, somebody who's never gone or, or kids who don't really care what they catch, we'll rig them with a couple medium-sized mayfly nymphs and just have them flop a bobber over the side of the boat and they can catch all the whitefish they want. Uh, in particular, in the upper Yellowstone, uh, the first 20 miles or so, the spawning activity from whitefish is just in- intense. And if you put a nymph on in like late August, early September, it's just about impossible to keep them off. So they, uh, they're they sort of a maligned thing. Fish, but I mean, they are a native fish. They're the only native fish besides the cutthroats in a lot of places. And generally speaking, they're the only native fish that's not done poorly in the presence of introduced fish. And so they got to give them a little respect. And like you said, they can get fairly big. I mean, there's, you know, occasional three pound whitefish caught in the Gardner River and in the Yellowstone River, not far from here. So, I mean, a three pound fish that's willing to eat a fly is a three pound fish willing to eat a fly. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, uh, last questions I, I've got for you. One of the last ones is, what is this land of giants? Can you go through what that means? Sure. Okay. So we've spent most of this podcast talking about the Yellowstone area, uh, either Yellowstone Park or the Yellowstone River immediately downstream of Yellowstone Park, and that's where my primary guiding is during the summer season. Basically, basically from late June through 
early October. I'm doing most of my work in Yellowstone Park and then on the Yellowstone River. In the spring, I do my work primarily on the Missouri River. And that's, you know, I work for a variety of, of shops and outfitters up there, but I also can work for myself since I'm a licensed Montana outfitter. And the section of the Missouri River I guide on is from Hauser Dam to Upper Holter Reservoir. And the famous section of the Missouri River is downstream of Holter Reservoir. And if you've seen the Missouri River mentioned or, or you know somebody who's fished it, that's probably where they fished, is below Holter Reservoir. And that's kind of what I think of as the normal Missouri. Now, this, the short tailwater from Hauser Reservoir down to Upper Holter Reservoir is a very different ballgame. It's um, essentially a tailwater leading into a lake. And that tailwaters produce big fish, lakes produce big fish. And so this section of the Missouri produces really big fish. Um, they did a shocking survey a couple of years ago, I read, and the average fish that they shocked up weighed 4.1 pounds. And those are rainbows. Wow. So I don't, I actually think they're that big through the whole year. I, but in my experience, both fishing and guiding, the average fish does weigh over three pounds for sure. And um, on a given day of fishing, let's say you catch five fish, you're going to catch more than five, but let's say you catch five fish. One of them is going to be like 12 inches. One of them is going to be 15 inches. And then three of them are going to be 18 to 23 inches. And, uh, and they're going to be really fat footballs too. What I certainly, what a lot of the fish are doing is coming from Holter Reservoir up into this short tail water section to spawn in the spring. And, and so, so that's, that's one reason they're so fat. They're, they're lake run fish, but then through the summer, um, you know, I guide there basically from March through July is, is the really key season there. And really March through May is when it gets the most pressure. I actually personally like it a lot in June because you start getting away from the spawning activity and start getting fish that are coming up there to feed. And it's, this is a very short tailwater. It's only about four miles in length. And so I think the fish can, can run up from the lake, feed on a heavy pale morning dun hatch or caddis hatch, uh, and then slide back down to the lake really easily. And so I, I tend to like that June fishing quite a bit because you're going to get a lot less crowds and more brown trout and just kind of you're not bothering the fish when they're trying to get laid, basically. Even in the springtime, I tend to fish the deeper water where we're not fishing for active spawners. We're fishing for the fish on their way up. So, and so that's land of the giants. It's the, the short tail water on the Missouri river and it's got really big rainbows in it and big browns, just not as many of them. It's also got some walleye and some perch and things. And it's, it's sort of unique among Montana fisheries in that it's only accessible in two places by walking. Uh, you can either walk in at the dam and there's trails on both sides or there's one more uh, access where you can drive up and then walk and wade. But otherwise, you cannot put a drift boat in on it because there's no boat ramp at the top. You have to run a power boat. And it, at least in the summer, it gets low enough where you can't run a prop motor. You have to have a jet. And so I, what you do is you put in your, your jet boat on uh, at the, the uh, um, gates of the mountains marina, which is a private marina on Upper Holter Reservoir, and you pay a daily fee to launch there. And uh, looks like this year guides are going to have to pay quite a bit to launch there. 
But anyway, you launch your boat there and you run across this very pretty lake um, up through a, a canyon, a short canyon section of the river. And you've got about four miles where you do repeated drifts. You know, you run up to a spot, cut the engine, uh, get on your oars, and then mostly nymph fish, although occasionally we get into hatches, and run your nymphs down and catch rainbows at essentially average 18 to 22 inches. Ooh. Yeah. No, I mean, it's if you visit my website at uh, – I'm working on my second website right now, but – my photo gallery is at montanafishing.guide. If you look at the photo gallery there, most of the large rainbows and quite a few of the big browns on that website were caught in the land of the giants. Has it always been named that? Like, who has that just been like the common name? No, I I actually think that I I, I researched that actually a little bit. Um, I think that somebody's client named it that, and I mean, we're fishing guides. We know when we hear. When we hear a good name that's going to help us sell trips, we we take it. And absolutely. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you'll hear it referred to as Land of the Giants. You'll hear it referred to as the Hauser Tailwater. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's an interesting place to fish. It's, there's not a huge number of guides who do it because you have to be a U.S. Coast Guard licensed captain to run a powerboat on the Missouri. And uh, that being said, it is a fairly short piece of water, and so you don't need a whole lot of people on it to get it relatively crowded but the rewards are are really big that sounds like a fun day of fishing yeah and the neat the neat part of it is it's the best time to fish it is certainly march or april through june versus a lot of what we have around here which you know may and june is runoff time and so it it slants several months earlier than most fisheries in montana in terms of the, the season so for example, somebody could come out and go skiing at Big Sky in March and then and then come fishing for a couple of days up on the Yeah, that's what my wife and I need to do because I don't ski and she doesn't fish. Yeah. No, that'd be cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, how's the beer scene? The beer scene in Montana is quite excellent, actually. Um, I don't know how many microbreweries there are within 100 miles of me right now. Um, there's several in Bozeman. There's even one in Livingston that I know of. And even the, the micro distillery scene has even taken off now. So I, if, uh, if you're coming to Montana, I certainly recommend uh, – probably the two beers I recommend the most are Cold Smoke, and that's a, by a brewery in Missoula. And then uh, I like Pig's Ass Porter, and, okay. and that's uh, by a brewery up in uh, up near Great Falls. And, and what's the deal with the lawmaker the last day or so who wants to ban yoga pants in Montana? Yeah, I uh, I don't know about that. Um, my girlfriend definitely likes wearing the yoga pants and, uh, yeah, in fact, today she wore jeans and I, I thought it was surprising wow. because she wears yoga pants most of the time. And, uh, yeah, no, I don't think that the law is going to pass. I, uh, it turns out one of my friends actually, she dated him. So yeah, I have like a direct link to this dude. Yeah. Well, Montana is an interesting place because you've got the, like skiing, snowboarding, fly fishing, climbing, whitewater rafting, eco-hippie types, and then you have the, a certain percentage of other folks who, are, uh, who want to kind of tell everybody what to do. I mean, it's, it's, I'm surprised that that lawmaker is offering that law here because for the most part, this is sort of a place where it's live and let live attitude. I mean, you can do whatever you want. You know, I might think you're going to hell if you do it, but I'm not going to ride you too hard on it. So... But yeah, I don't. I don't think that law is going to pass. I mean, it's, yeah. 
that's one of the benefits of urban fishing is we get the yoga pant hatch. Like it was 60 degrees this past Sunday and it was insane. Like we were out fish. We're trying to fish and it's, it's distracting. Yeah. It's one, very distracting. Um, a, f- a friend of mine, uh, a guy named Rob Olson actually has some regular clients who book him specifically to fish the lower Madison river in August. And that's a terrible time to fish the lower Madison river. It gets really warm. It's really low and clear and, and they might not catch anything, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of tubers who, uh, and uh, yeah. that's why they want to do it. Bikini hatch. So. All right. Okay. So I think I've got most of my questions. I'll say we'll definitely have to do a follow up when I'm out there. But uh, yeah, so you um, mentioned your website. We should, where where can we get the books? Okay, to get the books, um, my most recent book is called River Characters: uh, Deep Thoughts and Shallow Stories About Fly Fishing. And that one is available. You can either contact me directly, and the contact info is on my website at montanafishing.guide. And I can send you an autographed copy, and that's also available on Amazon. And then the, uh, the fly tying manual, Yellowstone Country Flies, that is only available directly through me or through my fly shop. It's, it's, it's a small, you know, a, a, a regional fly tying manual like that. You know, it's a small market, but it's a pretty consistent market. I sell about 100 copies of that every year. So it's pretty good. That's one every three days. Yeah. I mean, it's something. It's, uh, you know, I'm not making my living off writing, but I, it, I think this year I'll actually make enough to pay a couple, a couple uh, rent payments. Buy some more yoga pants for your girlfriend, right? So, yeah. We should definitely do a follow up. I could spend the whole, whole episode just talking about fishing in Yellowstone. Yeah. Right. It, it's usually, cover- it, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, I mean, I'm, I'm from Missouri originally, and there's a lot of states like Missouri that have some pretty good trout fishing, actually. Um, you know, the White River is right there in Arkansas and also has a short tail water in Missouri. There's some pretty decent spring creeks. There's a couple decent uh, spring-fed rivers that actually have some pretty big fish. Um but what it doesn't have is a whole lot of variety. You've got a few places to go, a few things to do. But what the really, I think the biggest reason that Southwest Montana, you know, Northwest Wyoming, Southeastern Idaho is so popular from a fly fishing perspective is that you have such variety. I mean, you've got little mountain trickles where you can take kids and get them a million brook trout. And you've got some really technical tailwater and spring creek fisheries where you've got, you know, big spooky fish and you've got, you know, big Canyon rivers, you've got meadow rivers, you've got lakes, you've got just so many different options. I mean, I can, I can fish within a mile of my house. I, and I live, you know, I don't have a a palace anywhere. I just live in an old house in the middle of town. I rent from a lady my boss knows. Um, I can fish two different rivers within walking distance. And so that's, you know, that's just a blessing. Yeah, I can get Korean fried chicken walking distance from my house. That's about it. it, it Korean fried chicken, by the way, is, is pretty damn awesome. That sounds pretty tasty, actually. Yeah, it's about the only thing out here. It's Korean food. Um, uh, I mean, there are some things you miss, too. I mean, I miss going to sea shows, and you know, I have to drive an hour and a half to get to the ski hill, and things like that. And, and I don't have Korean fried chicken within walking distance, but... yeah. You know, I've been I've been here for 15 years, and so I must must like it well enough. It's it's gonna extend the length of your life living out there compared to what I go through. You said your traffic is because of elk. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean that's not out here. Uh, yeah. I mean, my morning commute is if I'm you know I work in the fly shop, especially in the winter, and uh, so my morning commute is a two minute bike ride. 
And even if I'm, you know, even if I'm floating the Yellowstone as far away as I ever felt the Yellowstone, I'm looking at about an hour drive before I launch. So not bad. Yeah. Good scenery. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, so we got your websites your, your, and where we can find you when we're in town. Anything else? Yeah. Um, like me on Facebook, it's Yellowstone Country Fly Fishing. And uh, there's two, two Yellowstone Country Fly Fishings, actually. I'm, I'm the one with more likes. Uh, the other one, I think, is just kind of a blog that hasn't been updated in like four years. All right, people, take note. Listen. Write that down. That's your homework, people. Buy the books and go like on Facebook. Yeah. All right, and, Walter. And go fishing one. with me. Absolutely. Hire him for the day. All right, that's it for me. It's, uh, I think I need to go rustle up some dinner. It's 9.30 on my end. Yeah, that's, and, that's uh, getting kind of late. I'm, I'm getting pretty peckish myself. Absolutely. All right, well, go have one of those fantastic micro-brews for me and um, get this up on iTunes as soon as we can. Okay, great. Fantastic. Thanks so much for taking the time out tonight. Yeah, good talking to you. All right. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. This has been a production of Freestone Media.